welcome to the Doyen Podcast, episode 8, where we'll be chatting to Julie Willis. My name is Bridget Nathan, and thanks to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. Julie is an Australian architectural historian and academic. She's currently Professor of Architecture and Dean of the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. Julie, thanks for joining us today. I guess I wanted to start with asking, and this is a huge question, however, why do you feel that issues surrounding women in architecture are continually topical? Well, I think that the the reason it's topical is that we've been talking about the position of women in architecture for a really long time, and you would hope that things had improved over time, but there are still difficulties for women to access the profession fully, and to be really seen as a a strong, vibrant part of the profession. We've had parity in education in architecture for at least 30 years. That's that's a whole generation of architects. Um, But we aren't seeing the parity into senior levels, as, as you would expect. So there is, to use the phrase, there is a leaky pipeline and we really need to find out why that's the case. The other thing is that the sort of Second wave feminism that's been around Australia at least since the early 1970s, um, there was an assumption that things would get better and that we wouldn't have to keep fighting the battle so hard. And in some circles, people sort of say, but haven't we done it? Haven't we fixed the problems? It's all okay now, isn't it? Failing to realise that it hasn't fixed the problems. There's still problems there. There are still barriers um, for women participating in the workforce and in architecture and the built environment professions, it seems to be even worse than some other areas. So there's still a really, really long way to go. Yeah, and in your experience, can you talk a little bit about your career, um, firstly as an architect and then leading into academia? Well, um, uh, very, very, very briefly yeah. um, in practice, yeah. if you could count that at all, I graduated at a time of deep recession, so... Um, finding work wasn't at all easy uh, and many of my friends left to work overseas in Hong Kong or London um, and I didn't. I, uh, I did spend a time overseas working um, for uh, the US government actually in an internship program that's run in um, documentation of historical structures and came back to Australia um, and was there was just no work and so I enrolled in a PhD because that was something to do um, and something that really inspired me. So the amount of time I've spent in practice, I spent more time in an office when I was a student than I did when I was out, graduated, but that wasn't unusual at that time. So many of my colleagues were driving taxis if they weren't working in big firms in Hong Kong. Um, So I ended up in academia pretty quickly because that's where the opportunities lay. Um, Someone would pay me. (laughs) <laughs> and that was, you know, and then often is, I'm going to yep. go where I'm going to be paid after so yep. many years of study. Uh, so I found it, uh, found the opportunities in academia, doing PhD and then teaching and then getting my first full-time job as an academic and kind of have a look back, so yep. I've been doing it for um, decades now, yep. teaching, which I really, really love. Yep. So it's been great for me. It's probably been the perfect fit for me in my, terms of my temperament. Yeah. Um, but means I haven't spent huge amounts of time in breaks. Yeah, and do you think that there are different... I mean, obviously, working in architecture doesn't necessarily 
you know, going to an office and doing something nine to five. There's many different um, paths that you can take, such as, you know, what you've done and yeah. what many other people do. Um, do you think that there are um, easier, is probably not the right word, but do you think there are um, different career paths that are more forgiving for women or, you know, people who may want to have young families um, well, in the profession? Certainly that um, culture that is in some offices, yep. not all, uh, where you work till 9 o'clock at night yep. um, and you're in the office before 9 and you go home anywhere around 5 o'clock, you are somehow not giving it your all, you're not passionate enough for the discipline. Um, I think that's really hard uh, for young people of any, yep. any gender yep. um, to take on. Some of them embrace it passionately. Uh, I've... I found the situation just appalling, especially when you've been paid such a minimal amount of money. In fact, I'd had people suggesting I should go and work for nothing yeah. um, and work those kind of hours yeah. just to get a foot in the door. Yeah. Uh, I fundamentally didn't agree with that. Yeah. And um, so I do think there's the, the culture of the profession is really hard on people. It also privileges um, living lifestyle... Um, you know, thinking every design is fabulous and all that. So we, we, this is sort of pedestal as mm. to what architecture practice should be. But there are lots of alternatives um, and lots of people find their ways into alternatives. Um, pr- practice itself is actually pretty wide ch- church. You don't just need design architecture. You need people who can document, you need yeah. people who can write specifications, you need people who can go on site, um, you need people who can procure jobs, all sorts of different things. Um, and there are government positions and there are all, you know, you, you know that people go yeah. and do all sorts of different things and, of course, there is academia. So there's lots of opportunity for architectural graduates to go and do lots of different things, and they do. It's disappointing when they make the choices as to where they end up because they perceive traditional architectural practices too hard, just too much of a slog to get through, particularly if you want to have family. Yeah. I mean, academia has been great for me. I've had three children. I have very generous maternity leave provisions. Um, I had a job to come back to. In fact, they had to give me a job. All sorts of things that are benefits working in a university because it's a large organisation. So much of practices are small organisations who aren't um, either attuned to or um, willing to think about what other situations in which they can provide the best for their workers. Now, I'm not suggesting that's deliberate. Um, usually it's just an accident of, well, we started out this big and then we grew a little bit and then this situation came along and we haven't budgeted for it and how do we manage it? And, yeah. uh, well, the legislation says we have to do only this much, so we'll only do that much. Instead yeah. of thinking of the, the bigger picture, the larger the organisation, the more likely they are to be organised in this this kind of way and be more cognizant about how much it takes to recruit somebody, how much it costs to have that turnover of staff and those kinds of things. Yeah, and to want to keep them um, through all phases of their life, not just the graduate or not just, you know, the person who's wanting or willing to stay, you know, X amount of hours. Um, Well, yeah, I, I, I look at this now and you see this sort of model of practice where the, the partners are sort of thinking of themselves as the core of the firm yeah. and, and then they have these workers that come in um, and to an extent that's a floating population of right. staff and 
difficult to know where to draw the line as to how much you support and develop them. Think of it as a career for the people who are working with you. Now, if they've been there long enough, yes, you will think that, but if they've only been there for two or three years, that's a yeah, harder proposition. Exactly. So it's, there are all sorts of things that actually stack up against young women in the profession who might want to have children yeah. that make it harder and harder. They've got to have a sympathetic boss. Yeah, exactly. Um, to be able to manage the kind of things that they want to do. Do you think that it falls on both parties to be active? Yes, there does is. That, does, yes, that make I sense? Do. does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah, because I think that um, it's very easy for um, the, the individual to think that the world should be fair to them and that everyone above them should just recognise what's going on for that individual worker. It's actually hard sometimes to see down, um, to understand what's going on, especially if someone doesn't say, hey, this isn't working for me. Um, A good boss could be looking for those situations, but a good boss listens to it when it's told to them. And I do think that women in particular are pretty good at taking themselves out of the equation before they even get to the difficult point of, hey, this isn't working for me. And they just slink off and go away and find an alternative um, or give up work or or do whatever. Um, And so I do think that there has to be on both sides of of that relationship of employer and employee um, the willingness to talk, to listen to put the issues on the table and to try and find out a workable solution. Um, So you can't, as the employee, you can't just expect someone will sort it out for you. You actually have to articulate what you want. Now, if the boss says, oh, that's a load of crap, I'm not doing anything, find yourself another job. Yeah. (laughs) But if your boss says, yes, of course I'm willing to sit down and work out something for you, well, there was never any harm in asking. And I think we do... Women have a great deal of fear about asking. They tend to apologise a lot. Yeah. They tend to assume it won't be okay um, instead of actually putting it out there. When I go and speak to groups of women across the campus, I'm often trying to give the message that you have to go and ask and you have to own it and you have to assume that it's okay because if you start from a strong point and you've got to back off a little bit, that's fine. You start from a weak point where you're probably going to lose further. So you... You own it. Get out there and say, this is what I want. Some really interesting thoughts there. Julie, I'm really um, fascinated by this idea that was raised in um, a lecture that I attended in which you spoke and I asked the question, which was, um, why are these issues not raised with students when um, when they're studying? When I was a student, my gender was not an issue and I think that's a great thing about university. However, once I started working, I really felt like it was something that I had to think about or something that others were thinking about. Um, what are your thoughts on this? It's a really difficult yeah. situation. Um, I would love to be talking to the young women studying with us in the faculty and say, hey, this is how you deal with discrimination yeah. and you're going to see it yeah. when you go out into the workforce. When I do talk to women in that way who are students, they just go, oh, don't be silly, that doesn't exist. I've never experienced it. Yeah. And you, in fact, I have 
um, cohorts of older women who say they've never experienced discrimination, and I look at them and go, oh, yeah, you have, um, but you're not willing to acknowledge it because yep. you don't want to... You've worked for a position you respected. You just you accept that that's the way the world is, um, and you don't get angry. I'm the generation I tend to get angry. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to convince people that this exists as a problem if they've never experienced it. and Or identified with experiencing it. That's right. So if it's mild, you sort of brush it off. When it's completely overt and in your face, it's profoundly shocking. I don't know how to create the situation yeah. in a university yeah. where you could experience it because then I wouldn't be doing my job. But my role is to ensure that we have a safe space in which people are treated equally no matter what their situation um, and so I can't actually manufacture that experience but so I don't know how to have the conversation because people tell me that it's not a problem and yet I do know that it is a problem and I know it's a problem in history I know it's a problem in the university too yeah I, I still experience gender discrimination even though I'm very senior really? in the organisation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it become, yeah, without question. Yeah. And so the fight is not over and it will take a very long time for the fight to continue. Uh, and one day you would hope it's over. But, um, so I don't know how to solve the problem for women. I was fascinated by the question that you put in the, in the forum because I wanted to say, yes, but if I talk to you... For yeah. Five or ten years ago, you would have said there was no problem. Yeah, so why exactly. are you telling me this stuff? Yeah. So it's it's that chicken and egg situation. Yeah. Until you experience it, you don't believe it. And when you experience it, you want to say, why didn't anyone tell me? Because it is so profoundly shocking. Yeah. Sort of another one of my questions was the article that um, was published recently in Dezine by Dorte Mandra, mm-hmm. which you've probably read, discussing how there's um, it's not necessarily a positive thing to celebrate women in architecture as women architects um and there's you know a whole lot of somebody else in the forum also asked the question why are we getting together as women isn't this counterproductive so i think uh, definitely among my friends there is a lot of discussion you know we've, we had we've had a few get-togethers and people have said to me oh this is just man shaming or this is um i don't think there are any problems in our workplace at all um so i definitely think there is this mentality of these issues don't exist for us anymore but for myself since almost immediately since I've started working gender issues have just been like literally in my face the it's interesting when you talk about the sort of man shaming and um, this is all over isn't it and why are we getting together as women shouldn't we not you know everyone's treated equally we shouldn't have to pick out specially and I'd love to say that's true but I've been my PhD was on women architects and I can point to you to events that happened in the 1970s where women got together and they said, oh, no, we shouldn't have a women in architecture group. We, we you know, this is, it isn't a problem. We shouldn't do this, etc., etc. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We just want to, we just want to be good. We want to be picked up on merit, etc., etc. And you can understand that point of view, but we've had so many decades of it technically being a level playing field and statistics are very very clear that it is not there are systemic problems that just cumulatively add up 
that make it very, very hard for women to reach senior positions. So I had, um, when I had my first child, um, as I said I had three, um, my former dean at one stage sat down and said, you know, I didn't think you'd ever come back after my first, really? first child. Yeah. yeah. And I just looked at him and went, what? But he was just assuming that I would go away and be a mother. I didn't know you very well. Um, and so when you face you know that's one assumption um, and you face other assumptions about what you will do or what you can can or can't do I had a very very senior member of the university who I like a great deal who's we've worked together on projects not like say to me well you're kind of over-promoted for where you are in terms of your family situation because you have young school-aged kids and you can't spend all this time working out of hours. I had to, I was in a public situation um, and I was so shocked I didn't actually have a comeback, um, which is often the way. But if I'd thought about it too hard, I probably would have um, hit me in the face because <laughs> I was so angry. What is it, you know, why... Do women with school-aged children, why are they somehow can't be senior? It revealed with this particular person a view about when it was appropriate for a woman to be in a senior position. Somehow I was distracted. Um, and if I'd actually taken him up on it, he would know he would go, no, no, you're really good. It was one of those strange offhand comments. Actually reveals what he thinks. And so, and that was only a couple of years ago. And I also get now as um, dean, oh, you're terribly young to be a dean. Now, I should develop the response, yes, I must be terribly good because I'm so young. Now, people are making an assumption about my age. age it may not be right, um, but I need to have a comeback to it because it's happening all the time. Now, if I was male, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. There's something about me being female and being seen as... Either it's being said as a kind of backhanded compliment, or you must be terribly good, and you're so young to have reached such a height, or are you sure you're good enough, dear? You know, I don't know how to quite how to take it. Those kinds of things, when someone expresses surprise that you are in the position that you are in and doing what you are doing, they are revealing the fact that they think that perhaps you shouldn't be there. Uh, it's not normal to be there. And I find that absolutely yeah. astonishing. More often than not, it'll be comments that people say to you and you'll have to sort of decipher what did that person really yeah. mean in saying that you've been involved with parlour, um, yeah. something that's been discussed, um, there's underlying. Well, if you think of the, the classic thing where somebody leaves early from work to pick up their kids, if it's a woman, she's not quite really dedicated to a job. bloke is the, is the father of the year, you know, he's really dedicated to his kids. What's that about? It's the same thing, um, it's just that the woman is seen as the primary carer of the kids and the man is seen as doing a special favour. Um, you can't have that. I've got uh, women staff who work for me and they ask me, um, could I work from home, I've got a sick child. I'd go, don't ask me. You don't need to ask permission. You tell me, you, you know, you yeah. have to leave early, great, fine, don't care. Um, because I know you'll do the work. I don't yeah. need to know where you are. Yeah. I don't need to have you sitting at your desk for you to be an efficient worker. Um, and in fact, if you're distracted because your kid's sick, 
well, you're better off being home anyway. Yeah. There's some really interesting attitudes about uh, people being present or not present uh, and people making judgments as to whether someone is a good worker because they're in your face yeah. um, and appearing as opposed to just getting on with it. Yeah. Um, I think some of the most efficient people in the world are part-time working mothers. So it's it, very interesting sort of attitudes that are built up around these kinds of things. Yeah. And we really desperately need to break through it. It's just... Yeah. And what do you think the things that uh, men could be doing? Because I feel that the male friends of mine, this is a difficult discussion point because uh, it can seem in a way that you're blaming someone especially if they're not someone who's particularly open to it, feel like it's it's difficult to raise. Um, what do you think some of the things that males in the workplace, especially younger males who are, you know, going to be part of that next generation, um, could do to, to, to assist this? Well, it depends how they want to work. Yeah. Um, some men are, are, are really clear that they want a good work-life balance. And I think increasingly we will see that as younger generations come through, saying... I want a work-life balance. I'm going to spend this much time at work and then I'm not going to be at work at these these times. And with the blurring, you know, the, um, the idea that email or um, other kinds of social media can come through at any time, that you're never quite away from the work device, I think people will separate more clearly um, or be in different locations. But I think... Young men in particular need to think about the quality of life that they want to have and how they can be influential in their work environments to encourage that. Yeah. They need to think about the women that they know and to most of them are very clear that they think of themselves as equal yeah. um, and they need to be proactive about that um, and where they see instances of discrimination, call it out. Yeah. But there can be some really interesting simple ways in which you can challenge things. So Doug Hilton, who is the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research, yeah. seems like an odd analogy. He is very, very clear about gender. He tells his laboratory heads that they can have equal numbers of appointments of men and women. And if they can't make equal numbers, they actually reduce the appointments, number of appointments on the opposite gender until it balances. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. If you can't find the right number then yeah. you can't have. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good they are. Yeah. It's going to be equal. Yeah. Um, now, and there will be equal numbers of men and women on short lists for interviews, and you can't have more people unless you get the equal numbers. Yeah. Now, that's really powerful. He talks about it and he says that the change overnight when they realised they couldn't appoint, if they didn't get a good appointment over here that was of the opposite gender, they changed. Yeah. Things changed immediately. And it sounds draconian and it sounds as though it's not about merit. Yeah. But it ha you have to do something to change things quite deliberately. Yeah. So the problem with merit is that people look for the accolades that they recognise uh, and they fail to take into account systemic disadvantage. So if you've never had the opportunities... Well, no wonder you don't have a CV that looks like you've had opportunities. So when it comes to a merit-based assessment, the man gets up and the woman doesn't because the man's been to all these fabulous things because he could travel and the woman was at home with the children. Yeah. 
um, when you take away the sort of systemic disadvantage and start to look at the achievement relative to opportunity, things come into focus a little more. And when you've got to get equal numbers, it really comes into focus quite quickly and you start looking yeah. for good people. Um, and you look for talent, not on the list of things they have on their CV, but the what that person is and what they can do and what they can achieve when you give them the opportunity. Yeah. And so if you were to look back at yourself when you were younger, you tell yourself as someone who was perhaps even leaving high school and hadn't even studied architecture yet. Stop being scared. What are you scared of? Fearful of people finding out you can't do this. Stop it. Best thing that ever happened to me was losing my fear about what other people thought. As soon as I worked out, the, the worst they could say is no, that they mightn't like me for a few seconds. Chances were they're going to actually go, oh, that's pretty good. It was so liberating. And I just went, right, OK, let's go. Um, and have been able to do things that I couldn't have imagined possible, just walking into very difficult situations, being very clear and very calm about how to manage them. So that fear that had held me back for a really long time, decisions that I made that I didn't sort of leap out into the unknown because I wasn't sure, or I didn't think I was good enough, I, I regret that. I, so I would have said, just get out there. But I might not have continued in architecture, but done that then. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I do think a little bit of self-doubt is useful. There's a lot of debate on this, but I find it a bit of a motivating force to sh that helps me strive harder. It's not that I'm actually trying to prove to people I'm great. It's just I want, for my own purposes, to be the best I can be. And I reckon I've got more to go, so I'm going to push myself and myself tiny bit of self-doubt, I tell you it's tiny, is useful for driving that on. But, yes, and losing to, the fear. Yeah, and to, I guess, re-evaluate yourself along the way. Yeah. Thank you, Julie, for your time and for what has ended the first part of series one. Interestingly, this was the first interview.